Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's episode is a throwback Thursday episode, and uh, we're talking to Nick Watts. This one was cool because uh, Nick grew up in Florida, and uh, if you don't know, I did as well. And he, when he went to college, he realized just how beautiful like the oceans and beaches were and began to travel the world, fell in love with the South Pacific, and ended up exploring that area for a handful of years. You know, what's cool about this is at the time, I'm not sure if he still is, but he was involved with Occupation Wild, and we had the founder of Occupation Wild on a few years ago. And, uh, you know, one of the common things on this show, common things we keep running into is folks that take the path less traveled in life uh, when it comes to just a career and what they end up doing with their lives, myself included. And, you know, if you don't know, I work for a brewery. Uh, during the day, a non-alcoholic brewery called Athletic Brewing. In fact, I just got back yesterday from an experience with them. Uh, we we did an Ironman competition, a triathlon. It, we we sponsored Ironman, and one of our big races, like our big title race, was in Lake Placid, New York. And so I, I went up there last week. I was there for almost a week. I ended up taking my family. And it was just an incredible experience. And if you're on our newsletter, you'll notice that I wrote about it, how, yeah, it's not a typical adventure that we're used to in a lot of these episodes where you're out in the woods by yourself or having some unique experience. There's thousands of people doing this event, Uh, but it is an absolute adventure and it is something really unique. And uh, it's a strange path my career has taken me to that I never could have foreseen uh, when I first started pursuing uh, bike packing and bike touring in my college years. Uh, but here I am working for a brewery that's been an incredible experience. I've been there four years and it all started with just taking the road less traveled. Uh, that's how I'm even hosting this podcast right now. And so Nick, I really resonate with Nick's story and uh, how he ended up at Occupation Wild and how his experiences of just exploring opened up these you know, these, these ability to, to see the world in a new way and have these experiences you could just never have otherwise. And so if you're interested in taking the road last traveled, Occupation Wild is a great place to, uh, to start. It's uh, a job board for all sorts of uh, outdoors and adventure-based uh, careers and jobs. Uh, this is just a free plug for them. They're not a sponsor or anything. I just love what they're doing. They've got everything from like seasonal work at near national parks all the way to like bungee jumping instructor um wilderness field guides science adventures all sorts of guiding all sorts of like campground hosting and all that stuff um and they're full of people like nick who are doing really cool things and uh people like me who probably had a job like that at one point so uh, even if it's not something that's meant to be a full, you know, long-term career, doing interesting things like this, especially early on in your career, can really open up some cool doors. It did for me, and I had some temporary jobs uh, as well as some some great jobs that uh, that led me to where I am today in a really cool position. So, um, yeah, uh, let's go ahead and jump into some of these stories that Nick's going to share with us. Uh, check out Occupation Wild for what it's worth. Check out Athletic Brewing, too. I've had some really incredible experiences in this past week. Uh, not necessarily a wilderness adventure place, you know, an Ironman event triathlon, but it was very cool nonetheless and definitely a really unique adventure, and I'm happy to have been a part of it. So let's go ahead and dive in.
So yeah, I kind of just want to kind of get into your background, like where are you from, um, where are you living now, and also kind of what the last, was it the last five years, or was it a five-year period a while back? Uh, no, it was the last uh, last four and a half to five years. So um, so I'm I'm originally from Florida. Oh, uh, really? Where? Raised. Yeah, Sarasota, our south of Tampa on oh, the west man. coast. I'm I'm from Polk County. Oh, no way. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to a friend's uh bachelor party, a spear fishing trip in Costa Rica for a friend's bachelor party. He's from Plant City. It's like around that. Like, that's right north there. Tampa. Like yeah, exactly. Minutes. That yeah. is crazy, man. Yeah, that's so nice. Okay, so so I sorry I cut you off. So you're born and raised no, in Florida. Born and raised in Sarasota. You know, uh, I went to Florida State. I graduated with an environmental science and spatial geography degree. And then, um, you know, I originally had a job in Maine as a whitewater rafting guy as soon as I got out of school and broke my ankle dancing at a Mexican restaurant two weeks before uh, school let out. So I lost my position as uh, to be able to go through training and do that whole thing. It was kind of like kind of bummed that, you know, everything was planned. And all of a sudden, a two week period, you know, first time in my life changed, you know. And all the cards are out the window. Oh, yeah. You know, you're struggling. You're a new, like, hopeful post-college graduate like yeah the world is mine and then all of a sudden plans out the window you got to adapt um i had an amazing family my sister reached out and was like you know what she was in boulder colorado at the time she's like come do a little change come out you can stay with me uh you know figure it out get a job at a restaurant and do whatever uh so i kind of in the first step just said yeah sure i've got an in there's no reason for me to be here so i sold everything and packed everything in the back of my jeep cherokee and went um Ended up living in Colorado, uh, worked at a brewery in Boulder, moved up to Winter Park, uh, lived and worked in the ski town. So in the winter, I would work as a bartender for um, the Foundry, which was a movie theater, bowling alley, pizza kitchen in Winter Park. And then I've in the there. summer, yeah, have you? Yeah. yeah. I helped open that restaurant. What time of year was it? When were you there? Hmm. It was either, I think it was early winter, honestly. I think it was like October, but a snowstorm came in. It was right before ski season. And, uh, yeah, I was like, man, we need something to eat tonight. And that was like the only place that was open. It yeah. was, it was, before, so it was really dead, but, uh, so still you cold. know what the, like the space looks like, it was a cool space to work for, but large, you're walking lots of, a couple yeah. miles in a shift, you know, yeah, and you're serving the bowling alleys there. Um, so yeah, and it actually turns out in the winter time, that's like a big ski patrol hangout. They've got bowling leagues and that sort of stuff. So I got friendly with the ski patrollers and they mentioned they had a bike patrol. So I kind of got that job at bike patrol. Um, so I was a downhill mountain bike medic for uh, two, two and a half years. It was that job. So I was an outdoor emergency care technician for a downhill mountain bike park in Colorado for about two and a half years until I broke my left leg, right arm and almost broke my femur at work. So Holy crap. this was a week after my sister's wedding and six months before I bought my plane ticket to New Zealand in 2014 to me and my buddy steve we're gonna uh, move to new zealand to teach each other and kind of learn how to surf um so i've been living in colorado for about three years then i'm a florida rat i'm a water native like i need i need the water so i decided to take off for the sea for a six-month trip to new zealand and um you know i was pretty accident prone so my family's like you're not allowed to get hurt before my sister's wedding i was like all right sweet easy and then (laughs) a week after the wedding snap myself off in a Hawaiian t-shirt, you know, launch myself off the side of a cliff and like stop five feet in front of a fallen pine tree. So I went like 45 feet over just bare rock and rubble and almost impaled myself on this pine tree. If I'd gone any quicker, 
but got very lucky. Um, you know, a lot of people consider my guardian angel to be an alcoholic because I get away, I get into bad situations, but end <laughs> up on the that. other side. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's sitting there at the bar having a good time. He looks up like, oh, God, Nick, no, he's actually, no, he's okay. He's all right. I tend to get injured. I tend to, you know, make the best of the situation. But through all those, you know, I've had to change and adapt my life. And so this was six months before I was moving to New Zealand. I was living in a treehouse in the woods in Colorado. That's how I was working out of, you know, it was cheaper than renting a house. And I had one of those tensile treehouses, this massive, like, canopy style. I got tiki torches lining into it. I'd drive my car underneath it and enter in through the bottom. It was great, but not conducive when you have a broken leg and opposite broken arm in a full arm cast. No kidding. Yeah, I had some great friends from college, Shane Connolly, or Shane Connolly and Jackie Cash and their family like kind of took me in in uh, Denver and allowed me to stay at their, on their couch and kind of helped me out. And it was the thing that allowed me to move forward and actually go to New Zealand. Because since I was better, I started like selling things off because I was starting to pay for rent there. And, you know, I knew this trip was coming up. I actually got a job at a restaurant just for a month. And then so I was leaving for New Zealand. And four days before I was leaving, I only had $400 to my name. I had a working holiday visa in New Zealand. So I was like, that's all right. You know, get there and it'll change the plans a little bit. But I'll just have to get a job immediately. And we'll kind of kick it one place and do that. But right before I left, I sold my... uh I had a, a Toyota 4Runner, so I sold that for about $8,500. So I was going, I had plenty of money. Things happened, you know, stress levels were high, but worked out in the end. So ended up going to New Zealand for this six-month trip. So it was the first time um, we kind of, we built the van. We had an all-wheel drive Toyota Hias, built our van, and traveled the country. We surfed 96 beaches in six months on both islands, and we made money by picking fruit around the country fruit picking holy cow that's hard work yeah apples so we were picking i was picking about three tons of apple a day <laughs> what three tons that's that seems like a lot yeah i mean it it is but you're you're carrying like these 40 kilo bags and you just you know every every couple every about a minute and a half you're dumping your bag you know it's just it's a lot like you're in an eight hour day of just i've never had a boss come up to me and tell me to turn my brain off and pick the color red He's just like, Nick, you're thinking too hard. He's like, I know I want 75% of an apple, but like that apple's like, well, that apple's about 65%. He's like, Nick, you're thinking way too hard. Just turn your brain off and pick the color red. Pick the color red. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. But, you know, so you're, you're trying to do this as quick as possible, but you're carrying around this steel ladder running up and down and, you know, have these crates you're supposed to fill kind of down the line. So pretty tedious work, but you know, we didn't do that very often. The pay was really good and it allowed us to kind of be mobile, travel around. Um, so in the six months, we did 18,000 kilometers, 96 beaches all over the country. You know, it's an amazing way to kind of travel and get out where you can travel with a purpose. Like you really never have a dull moment. You're always on a true like exploration. You're on a little bit of a mission. You've got an idea of something you're trying to to do and get after. And it makes those like some of those days around the road a lot easier because you, you don't have to think you always have an activity that you're, you're trying to do and getting after. Um, so that was an amazing, great time. You know, it's New Zealand still hands down one of the prettiest places I've ever been. You can be on a surf beach through to, through a rainforest to a glacier in a 20 minute drive. There's everything from a low tide hot spring so on a beach you dig a hole and at low tide it's a hot spring and the kind of tide whaps you in on a hot water beach in Coromandel and glowworm caves and the people there are just absolutely incredible but it's a it's an amazing amazing place we got to spend a great six months traveling around there and 
really truly exploring like we moved there because we figured i mean it's the size of the state of florida and twice as wide so it's an easily navigable and easily almost conquered place in six months like where can we go and really do it all so we did it like uh anytime anybody has any question about new zealand send them my way like i love that country there's, there's so many cool little nooks and crannies and the people are amazing but so the time was coming up like my six months were almost done and uh i reached out to my to air i think it was flying air fiji and i was like you know listen I'd, i was having a layover in um, nandi on vito levo in fiji i was like listen i would love to uh <clears throat> to kind of check out fiji for a little bit like how much would it cost to add an additional layover like it's a hundred bucks for 48 hours. I was like, perfect, done. Per- yeah, uh, that's awesome. Let's, let's do it. A lot of, actually a lot of airlines will do that. Cause if you reach out, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, we'll get a little extra money for you and you can, st- sometimes it's free. It most usually costs hundred to 150 bucks, but you can do it pretty much from 36 to 72 hour kind of period. So it's a nice little hack to be able to do like a midway vacation on your way home. So I really liked Fiji. Um, I never went back to my plane. I, I bet that tends to happen a lot for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, with your passport stamp, you get 90 days. So I'm on the island of Fiji. I'm loving it. I've got my open water dive certification on Mana Island. I've explored uh, some of the outer islands. I surfed Cloud Break on Tavarua. Uh, actually, I surfed that only having surfed for five months. It was one of the more scarier times of my life. Oh, <laughs> um, paddled for my life for about 45 minutes after like standing bare reef. And it was a lay day for the Fiji Pro, so it was about four four foot with the occasional five six foot. I had no business being out there, but I did, and thank God I'm alive to tell the tale. You gotta have you gotta uh, have so, a few of those along the way, you know. Oh yeah, you know you do. Um, so in Fiji, you know, starting to realize, hey, you know, I need to start figuring out the next step. I knew I could get a working holiday visa in Australia. Uh, everything in kind of my life. Before this was really pointing towards Australia, I wanted to add it to the list, but I picked New Zealand first because it was a smaller place. Um, so I start going to the marinas. There's uh, two marinas. Uh, one, in, I think it's, I want to say it's Lenikau, um above Nandi, but that could be the, on the island of uh, Tana and Vanuatu. I, I get the two confused. And there's uh, Sabu Sabu on the other side. So the island of Vitalevo and Nandi, which Fiji has 333 islands. It's a big sailing, like cruising port for people on boats. There's only two marinas. So I picked the one closest to me. I hung out the marina. I started asking captains. It's like, you know, do you need help on your boat? At night, I'd go to the marina bar. I'd sit down. I'd chat. I'd buy captain's rum and kind of figure out stories, see who's going where the next day I'd go. So I was like, hey, I met you last night. You know, do you need help on your boat? Where are you going? Hey, any chance you're leaving soon? Yeah, I could get a ride. Eventually got my first job. Uh, it cost me about $10 a day, but they were going to Australia. It was going to take them, I think, a month and a half. Um, so end up on my first trip to Vanuatu on the way to Australia. I'm a, like I said, I'm a geography major. I did spatial geography. It was kind of how the earth orients itself versus placial, which is how people orient the earth with boundaries and that sort of stuff and state lines. So I'd never even heard of Vanuatu. As a geography major, I was a little embarrassed. Like, I'm going to where? Right. <laughs> you know, they're like, <laughs> it's well, yeah, a, I mean, Florida, man, you're like so far from yeah. everything. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah, it's at Florida State. Like, we have classes on the South Pacific. There's a lot going on. There's too much to cover in like a two week period of this class to be able to showcase everything. So, if you want to learn about it, do your own self study or take this class. There's too much to like kind of dive in when it came to world geography and that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm like, yeah, sweet. All my entire life, I wanted to be an explorer. I'm going to uncharted territories in my mind. I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. 
So on my way um, to Vanuatu, we end up going through the south. So we go to this island of Tana, which is um, has the world's um, most accessible active volcano. And it's, the, it's called Mount Yasuri. And it like, you could see it coming in, and it's constantly always erupting. We show up to the port the first time that I kind of got in my head that I kind of wanted to leave this boat. Is we showed up to this port, and the captain didn't let any of us know that we needed to have money to come into the country and he didn't bring any money either. So none of us on board had any cash, which is something you need for port of entry. And most captains in the world know this. And, you know, it's not on the crew to pay this money anyway, but if we'd have known, like we would have been fine paying it. So it's like the captain's running around to other boats, trying to figure out how he can scrounge this money up so we can get ashore. And eventually we get ashore. And again, no money. There's no ATMs on this tiny Island. So we're walking everywhere. We actually took the same walk that Captain Cook took from Port Resolution Bay to um, uh, Hot Water, what was it called? Hot Springs Village or Hot Water Beach. It's right around the, this this village that lived at the base of the mountain. So um, wow. one of one of my uh, sailing mates had been had read the book of Captain Cook and had been there before and had taken this path. And we found these girls that were fishing that were going back to the village and they led us through this path. On like the footsteps of Captain Cook, which is really cool. I've read the, the book as well. And it's just, you go to the base of this volcano through the rainforest and then to the ash fields where there's wild horses and you're coming up and this mount, this active volcano is just always rumbling and smoking. And then there's this village that lives underneath it that has, you know, they're living in thatched roofs and huts above the ground because the tide will come in. And I never, I mean, I've, I've been to the Caribbean. I've been around, like, I've never really seen this way of life before. Like when we, when we parked our boat, people came up and dug out canoes and were offering fish to trade for certain things. Like it was, it was true. Like I really started to feel like I was out there really exploring something that not many people have ever really witnessed or seen. And then it, we figured out that to get up the mountain, to get up the volcano, it actually costs money. And we're like, Oh, well, we can't, we can't do that. And then we decided to, to kind of bootstrap it and we just start walking to the backside of the volcano like we'll walk up it world's easiest accessible active volcano it's like a 30 minute hike there's a 30 minute scramble <laughs> so we start walking and uh you know the sun's going down all of a sudden the mountains you know shaking a lot you know we get to the top and you see the magma just erupting you know launching balls straight out of it like it's it's actively gurgling and spitting and you're up there you know, my, my adventure brain's like, yes, this is awesome. Like, this is super cool. My science brain's like, you don't know what's underneath you. You don't know if this cliff's been undercut. You don't know how active this volcano is. Is this thing going to erupt any second and scorch your face? Are you in danger? Are you safe? So it's like, we were up there for about seven minutes. You know? Yeah. What a it way got, to go, though, to the, you know, if you did. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, what, what happened how, to him? How did Nick die? He fell in a volcano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> volcano, volcano got him. Like, you got, uh, volcano got him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're on top of this, this volcano. It's like, all right, man, it's it's time to go. Like, we got we to gotta get out of here. This is just... And the people, the two guys I was with, Reese and... Um, I'm trying to blink on... Uh, Aaron, I think, on his name. But it's... We were like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Like, we're up here enough. You know, so we head down... And then eventually, you know, we cruise through Vanuatu, um, and all the time I'm, I'm reevaluating my captain, the way he runs his ship, as well as the safety of the boat and kind of how he goes about his style. And I just don't feel comfortable. So when we get to the island of uh, Fate in Port Vila, where we're kind of re, um, 
supply reevaluating supplies and getting gas and water and that sort of stuff i decided like i'm i'm not gonna go anymore with this captain i don't feel safe to spend another 2500 nautical miles with this person in open ocean why, why was that what about it let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode what about him? Um, so, you know, uh, the one of the things was a girl on board, a 25-year-old girl started sleeping with the captain, started bossing us around, you know, starting to act more like a first mate. Uh, he was a little bit more of on the arrogant side, and his boat was maintained, but he was cutting a lot of corners. Like, it was my first boat, my first vessel, really, in blue water and open ocean, and at no point did we have life jackets on at no point were we tethered in at night watch there was no sort of redundancy to make sure the night watchman hadn't gone overboard like there's certain variations even with sailing if you see somebody go over you're never going to get to them like there has to be certain protocols to be able to like they have this they have this 15 foot pole that you're supposed to throw out kind of with a strobe light but you think about a person in a boat you know if you're in swell you get into an off cadence trough to crest like you're you could be 10 feet from them, but you're never going to be in view because your boat's moving. It's like Wilson in Castaway. Like he's right uh-huh. there, but he's just going in the opposite direction. And it's not like you're on a, a motorboat where you can just turn the engine on and turn around. Like some of these boats, if they're made of concrete or steel, they could weigh, you know, upwards of 10, 20 ton. Like turning this thing around, stopping this thing and figuring out how to reevaluate wind and get back to you is a mission. You're in too large a seas. You can't uh, launch the Zodiac. Like, there's certain protocols that in redundancies that I figured out later, but I was cautious about then that you really need to have to run a safe vessel. And it just wasn't there. So what'd you do? Um, so when I get to a country, I kind of, I tend to find someone to connect with culturally, like whether it's, I go to the same lady from where so at lunch, you know, that has this soup or I go and I use the same bus driver. I go and I, I talk to the same guide in this place or the same lifeguard here, but I try and find one person to kind of connect with and build a small rapport. Even if you don't speak the language, it's kind of nice to have that, that little thing, you know, where maybe a week out of their life, you were, you know, part of theirs. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in that, I found this guy, Nono Jones, who is our bus driver. He, when we were on the island, he took us like around to like the snorkel spots and like showed us a little bit about the island and told us a little bit about the history. Um, but he speaks Bishlama, which is pidgin English. So when the missions like came to them, they taught them English, but they never taught them how to like kind of write it. So they've developed the phonetical English that there's no vowels, there's no rhyme or reason to the way they kind of write. It's just, it's sounded out. So when you look at a sign, you're reading a sign, you're like, what does that say? And then you kind of sound it out and you're like, oh, okay, that, I guess that makes sense. Like me want them a bintang. It's like, I want a beer. Like it's it's just a variety of different, it's in it's Creole English, it's Pigeon English, it's Bishlama, it's all the kind of the same sort of variation there. So when I mentioned to him that I was thinking about leaving the boat, he graciously offers, like, well, you live with me. And I was like, oh, well, I really don't have any other options. That sounds okay. So <laughs> I end up living with him in his village in Vanuatu for roughly a little over a month, close to a month and a half. Um, while I was, you know, actively looking for other boats to kind of continue this journey towards Australia. Like everyone asked, like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm on my way. I'm just kind of on my way to Australia because I know I can get money there. And then back to the van in New Zealand, like I don't rent cars or rent houses. I like to, you know, I mean, houses, obviously, but I like to, if I'm going there to buy, I'll buy a vehicle. 
It's something I can get around with. And I've invested that much money into it to be able to have something to take back with me to, you know, fuel the next step. So when Steve and I built our first van, um, we actually sold it for two grand more than we bought it. So we split the profits and that kind of fueled my leg through the South Pacific. Um, but, you know, I, I was conscious about my money levels. I knew at the rate, like I needed to kind of reevaluate and get to a place. But I live with uh, Nono's Village uh, for about a month and a half, waking up every day. I'd work in the garden. I'd fish with them at night. We'd make kava. Uh, and it's different than Fijian kava. It's a fresh kava. So you're making you're not drying it out like you're making it in the river and doing the entire process. And like that's big in their culture is they don't really drink. Um, it's kind of hard for them to drink. Their bodies can't physiologically kind of really take the alcohol people that have been introduced to that gene that haven't been introduced before the 200 years their the physiology and their brains kind of react differently they can get violent they can get depressed it just i've noticed it in different places in the world but it just really it really doesn't blend with them and they have a hard time with it but they drink this kava which is um it's a it's a root that they has like psychotropic and psychoactive prob- probabilities to it and it's just this pretty much muddy water that you kind of drink out of a coconut shell. Does it taste and, like it too? Yeah, it doesn't taste good. It's really bitter and kind of gross, but it's the cultural thing to do. It's like, you know, I did some rainforest conservation when I was in college in, in Ecuador. And you're, you're doing kind of the same thing there. They have chicha, which is like this masticated yuca that the village people chew, like the women of the tribe chew on and spit back into a bowl. Like that's all they drink. They don't drink water. So it's like, Sometimes you're in these situations, you just kind of got to bite the bullet and go with the flow, whether (laughs) it's part of it, huh? It's part of it. You know, it's part of the journey. It's part of the unknown. Like you don't know what it tastes like till you really give it a go. And you know, it's part of their culture. So you're in their culture. You should be a part of it too. So you kind of got to just give it a try. Uh, It was interesting. You know, it wasn't my favorite thing in the world, but obviously I learned to make it. You know, I was was part of that. It was the, you know, gender societal thing to do. So I was part of it. Um, and all the while, you know, doing this, I was accepted into their village and more importantly, I was accepted into their family. Um, they actually, by the end of it, the three district chiefs of the village, uh, got together and the family adopted me. I can, uh, legally get a Vanuatu passport and I have, uh, I have land waiting for me in the Southern Island of Tana in the South where they were from. So like they, they really appreciated me, me kind of being there. Um, but it's a, it was a really interesting culture to get to know because like I said, there, I was always wanted to be an explorer and that was true exploration. Like there's a, there's an Island there that essentially invented bungee jumping there. It's on Pentecost. They're called the land divers. So they would jump off this 60, 79 to 90 meter self-made tower with three vines that they went into the bush and collected and tied around their ankles in jumping over onto a pile of mulch. I have seen that. I have seen a yeah, documentary that, about that. Right? It's I think it's on a, like a People's Planet or the cultural like kind of Blue Planet style documentary. Yeah, yeah. It's like a isn't there like a ceremony or something every year? Around yeah, it? exactly. It's okay. it's who's become it's becoming a man and it's becoming how strong you are in their yes. culture as well as like showing how close you can get to God by how close you can get to the ground. And there's no measurements. They're just going into the bush and whacking down vines and tying them together and giving it a jump. So it's like that sort of style of culture. And then they have a massive, like really big underlying black magic culture as well. Like there's still active cannibalism. There's still active sacrifices. Did you run into any of that? 
Uh, I didn't. I was on actually when I, I did my advanced dive certification on Espiritu Santo in the far north. Um, so I did on the USS President Coolidge, which is a 1942 troop carrier. It was an old luxury cruise ship, but they turned it into a troop carrier back in the war, and it just sunk right offshore. So it's a love. It's a cool shore dive. But on the far north end, northeast end of that island, you're advised not to go because there's a, a tribe of pygmy cannibals. We're talking like three feet to, you know, dwarf sized pygmy people that will like hunt you down in the tall grass and eat you. No freaking way. I mean, while I was there on an island, uh, there's a guy that got convicted, tried and um, eaten by a neighboring village because he was convicted of turning into a shark and eating another guy. Of, of like physically morphing into like a, a physically shark, like black morphing magic into it. Yeah, black magic. <laughs> so essentially, you got so like, that. Holy crap! They they have a hundred percent. They have wizards. They have magic men. They have all sorts of variations of these uh, magic people. And they, as a culture, they really don't like to travel into islands um, unless they're traveling with a white person because wow. they and they call you white man. They believe. Like, it's not that they are, you're above them or anything. It's just the cultural thing. But like, they believe the fact that because we're above it and we don't believe in it, that the magic men are afraid of our confidence and that. So they will stay away from them. So they're they're safe. They're comfortable with kind of navigating around with us versus just they don't feel comfortable going to an island alone because they feel like if they get touched, they'll bring some bad juju back to their village and their family and things will start to go away because it's happened in the past or some story from some grandma down the way, you know, it's all passed down by, you know, verbal lineage in essence, because they didn't really have such yeah. a writing culture. So, so what was your take on all that? Were you like, Oh, forget this. Or was there even, was there a level of danger, even not believing in it, but just feeling threatened that someone would do something to you? I never really kind of felt that threatened. You know, I was obviously more aware of my surroundings and kind of where I was. But, you know, I also had people that were looking after me. I had people in the culture that kind of had my back as well. So I never really felt, you know, too exposed in that degree. But I, they definitely kind of allowed me into their culture and, and told me different stories of past and present and kind of what's going on. Like uh, back in, I think it was 2014, right before I got there, or 13 they had a big cyclone um that came through and really ravaged a couple islands but it's believed that so molecular and ambrum are right across the channel from each other they're pretty close and it's believed that a magic man paddled in a dugout canoe from ambrum over to molecular and dug uh two coconuts and put them on the sand and then that's why that the cyclone came and ravished uh, molecular but didn't really touch ambrum because it was hunting for the coconuts. And what what do you do when they're telling you when they're explaining this to you? What what is your are you like? What are you thinking? I'm like, oh yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, coconuts <laughs> bad. <laughs> you know, you kind of just accept the yeah, fact you got that like, to, this I is. Guess. Yeah, you entertain it. You think it's like, where am I? You know, like, right. what did I just listen to? No but kidding. then you also think it's like this just shows you how far out in the middle of nowhere I truly am. Like it's the smallest South Pacific island chain. It's 2,500 nautical miles from the coast of Australia. It's 500 nautical miles from Fiji. Like it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. There's even a, a book written about the islands. It's called the Cargo Cult. So back in the day, we we used Vanuatu as a strategic kind of naval base. Uh, that's why there was that wreck in the in the North Island. But in a couple of the Southern Islands, we would do cargo drops just in case we needed the island in preparation. 
And there was tribes that lived there that had never seen a plane before. They'd never witnessed any of these goods that were dropped. And they completely disregarded all of their beliefs and started worshiping the planes. Oh, no way. They started worshiping these cars. And this isn't, this isn't 1940. This isn't like in the 1800s. Like this is a relatively, you know, there's planes. Yeah. There's war, there's there's things going on, and they're just on this island and have no idea of what's going on elsewhere. You know, they're living essentially in a stone age and seeing a plane and like, what is that? Throwing spears and shooting arrows at it, you know? So I'm here, uh, I'm again, working towards finding my way back on towards Australia. Um, I leave notes in the marina. Uh, I actually had a small business swimming around the marina with some of my uh, brothers or village people that I was living with. And we'd clean boats, you know, we'd free dive and kind of scrape holes because there's no place to take the boats out of the water. For one, it was a good entry for me to start a conversation with the captains that were in the marina. Uh, like, hey, where are you going? You know, I noticed you you got this. Like, oh, let me help you with this. And also, I'd like to talk about maybe helping you out throughout your way on the way. So we, you know, make some money and kind of scrape the holes of the boats because it does really make you go faster. And if you're in the ocean, if there's anything that life can attach onto, it will. The ocean is extremely resilient. It'll always find a way to bring you a little hitchhiker on your sailboat. So through that, and um, I actually found this guy, Brooks. Brooks McChutton, who was the captain of the Lear, which is a research vessel going around Vanuatu, um, kind of encroaching, helping the third world transfer into more of a first world, like environmental uh, sustainability. So he was teaching villages how to do their own reef checks, how to figure out if they're overfishing, figure out if, you know, this is the right time to fish, what size fish they should take to be able to allow a more sustainable outlook for the future existence of their village, their, their island, as well as their country, you know, so he was going around doing this and me being environmental science as well as sailing and water nerd. I loved it. You know, I had an amazing time and I learned a lot. So he trained me as first mate and we actually did a windward sail back to Fiji because I knew in Fiji, there was a lot more boats coming through. There's a lot more traffic. I could, I'd have a better chance at finding, you know, a ride to Australia. So I'm on my way back to Fiji for the second time. You know, I just spent a month and a half living on a dirt floor with a village, you know. So during this time, are you are you actively trying to get to Australia or is it kind of like I'll, I'll get there when I get there? Are you like chomping at the bit saying I got to get to Australia? No, I'm like I'm, a, I'm on the ride. You know, at this point, yeah. I've got savings. Like it's not like it's not a monetary thing. You know, it's about July. I understand that with seasonal work, you kind of need to get there in the off season. So I really wasn't in any rush. I was like, you know, I'll get there. Uh, I'll figure it out one or the other. Yeah, I'm moving backwards, but it's just for another experience to move back forwards again. Like maybe I'll end up in a different island. Maybe I'll, you know, I really wasn't, I wasn't thinking anything. I was just kind of out there just to keep moving forward and learning and trying new things. And while on this vessel, he actually took me under his wing and taught me to be first mate and paid me $300 for the crossing. So this is my first paid job as a sailor. Um, I was, was taught weather forecasting and boat dynamics, diesel engine work, uh, battery, um, installment as well as, um, upkeep. And then also radar, sonar, and a variety of different weather forecasting and navigating tools to be able to kind of be second in command on the boat. So, you know, we're going in a windward sail, which means you have to find the correct weather window where you're riding between a high and a low pressure system. And it's called a trough where there's this 
a little bit of variation where convection and winds happen that create at one point it's almost like an eddy where there's just a stagnant doldrum of wind that just kind of doesn't really do anything so we found our weather window and it was going to be about a seven day windward sail back to fiji um so we we get we get on the boat around the lear there's a two Nevons or Vedawantons that were coming with us, Brooks, and then uh, I forget his name, but he's a, an English guy that came with us as well. Um, so we're sailing into the wind, but there's not much wind. You know, the South Pacific was a lake. It was wild wow. to see. Like there was, there was not a ripple on the water. There was not like a lick of breeze. It was a lake. It was hot. That had to be a weird feeling. It was a weird feeling. So I'm 250 nautical miles from any island. And if we go off by two degrees, you're never going to hit anything but South America and Chile. Like, you know, we're going shooting for small islands that you really have to pay attention. Like when you're on night watch, you have big, big duties of making sure you're staying on track. You're on your degree. You're on the right thing. And if you're not, you're, you're making an active plan to ride the wind out here to make the turn to get back onto course. So we're in in um, doing a motor sail, so about halfway through, like I said, 250 nautical miles, we gotta change the oil. So, Lake the South Pacific is a lake. It just looked down; it's just crystal clear. It goes down to just different variations of darker blue. I look at Brooks and I'm like, man, I've never seen any water like this. I'll never see this again. Wow. We're at the deepest point I'd seen was about 14,000 feet of water. We were at where we were was about 10,000. Looking on the the radar and the, the sonar, you could see that it was about 10,000 feet and just close to us was up to 3,000 and it dropped down to 14,000. So it's like, I could take a guess and theorize that we were near a subaquarian volcano. Like we were near some sort of landmass that was, we're on the ring of fire. Anything, this sort of like variation can happen with spatial geography. And it's like, it's like, this is a mountain. Like I would love, like, can we get in? I've never felt that much depth. You know, you're in a field and you can look at a 14,000 foot mountain. You're like, wow, that's your breathtaking. When you go underneath that water and you're looking down and you can just see nothing but just darker shades of blue into the abyss, you have no variation of how deep like you're really looking. It could be hundreds of meters of visibility. It could be thousands. It could be, you know, 10 feet. But you then you turn around and say you're about 10 meters down. You're looking up and you just look up and there's the you can see the boat. Perfect. It's not really bobbing. It's just kind of moving. And there's a little refraction uh, on the water line of the boat. But it's like it's like you could almost breathe. It's like you're outside, but you're underwater. It was the most surreal, crazy experience I've ever had in any water field. And it, it was, I'll never forget it to this day. Like I have a really cool picture of it as well as you can just kind of see just how clear the boat looks. And Brooks on it when we were jumping in, he's like, you know, I give you guys about 10 to 15 minutes. I was like, why are you gonna be done that quick? He's like, no, I just wouldn't trust yourself being out there splashing around like an object in distress when you're this far outside of any landmass. Something that's migrating by is oh, going to wow. pick you up from 100 miles away and come to investigate. I was like, thanks for the vote of confidence. I really appreciate the positivity. Yeah. Then jumped in. You know, it's like, well, at uh, least it's clear. I'll be able to see something coming. So needless to say, we didn't really, uh, we didn't really stay that long. Um, but it was a wild experience to see that clear and translucent water. It was, it was amazing. I bet. I mean, did you see anything, anything approach you while you're out there? No, nothing, nothing was out there, thankfully. Good. But good. I mean, you could, or you could just, you just, you could see, like, if you went down and looked horizontally, like you could just see everything. Like, 
just it went for miles. You felt like you could because it's just blue. All you could see was different colors of blue. It was wild. So back on the boat, we finished the sail. It took us uh, about, I think it was seven or eight days. So it took us the full amount of time. Um, Sailed into Fiji. And then, you know, I helped Brooks settle up the boat for cyclone season. He was heading back. He owns Berkshire's uh, Sweet Gold, which is an organic syrup factory and farm in New Hampshire. And then he does this in the winter. Um, So he was heading back to New Hampshire. And um, again, back on Fiji with no way off the island. So this time, since I came in under a captain, I had to either find a captain or buy a plane ticket to be able to stay. So while I was underneath the captain, while Brooks was there, I'm frantically looking for another boat because as soon as he leaves, there goes my ability to stay in the country because with him leaves my visa because I'm under the captain's rule. I don't necessarily have to have a visa, but since I'm under his command, I'm under the captain's visa. And once he leaves, I'm out of luck. I either need an exit plane ticket or I need another captain to sign me on. So I'm stressing. I'm like, what What am yeah. I going to do? You know, like, I've got seven days to find a boat. Last time the boat, I think, took me about two and a half weeks to find a boat, three weeks to find a boat. So I'm like, I know people at the Sunset Bar, which is in Vunda Marina and Vito Levu, where I was before. I was like, I was asking all them, do you know anybody going? Do you anybody? It's like, no, people are kind of coming back and mooring boats. Like, it's like, oh, really? Is it getting this late in the season? So that was the first time I was like, kind of get a little fire under me like I, I should probably i should probably get going um because summer's approaching and that's their cyclone season so this is about july maybe even august at this point uh, i'm kind of losing track of my timeline but i eventually um i get an email from so i left a note in uh port vila on the marina saying hey you know i'm this person this is my story. I'm looking, I have this amount of experience. I'm doing this sale right now to Fiji. I'm trying to get to Australia. Uh, I'm willing to come and fly back, whatever. So I get this email from this uh, Canadian couple from Vancouver Island saying that them and their niece were sailing on from Vila to Australia. I had actually met them when I was swimming around the marina. I was swimming in from one of the boats I was working on and like, oh, you're a good swimmer. I was like, yeah, I kind of do this a lot. And so we just had a little passing and then they recognized my name and picture on the thing. So they were comfortable with kind of reaching out and being like, hey, we have a position for you. So in the end, it really, you never know who you're talking to. They could be a helping hand three months from you and your travels. You never really know. So another little life lesson there in travel hack. Um, so yeah, I, I get this email. I take the money Brooks spent, paid me $300. I get a plane ticket one way uh, back to Port Vila. And on entry, I have confirmation from the boat captain that i'm going under his command so i'm under his visa so i don't have to worry about another exit plane ticket anything like that so big relief off my shoulders but i had about five days of pretty decent stress you know that i wasn't sure what i was going to do if i needed to buy a plane ticket and be able to have something that could change and maybe adapt to fly somewhere else so get on it's a 43 foot sloop which is a, a single masted sailboat and we're leaving from Port Vila and we're off to Numia, New Caledonia. And again, another country I really didn't know anything about. <laughs> that didn't really <laughs> stop you before. So <laughs> didn't stop me before. So um, if this one is going to be a three day sail uh, into Numia and it's actually a French colony. So this is the largest, uh, it's actually the richest French colony um, 
in their empire. And it is has the largest nickel and copper deposits in the world. This is single-handedly one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my entire life. So this island is the world's largest lagoon, meaning that the entire island is surrounded by a barrier reef. And it's a 300 by 30 mile island that has nickel and copper and all sorts of minerals uh, in the dirt. So the ground is stark red, like we're talking burgundy. It's just the craziest color red. And then the island is covered with Norfolk pine trees. So massive, like 100 foot tall Christmas trees. And they go down to white sand beaches with palm trees. So a pine forest with palm trees on a white sand beach. And then it's just this crystal clear, massive lagoon that's just got coral reefs and fish. And and it's just, it's absolutely insane. And then you add island French culture, which is very French, but very laid back. It's still, it's island French. It's not as like pretentious and really like kind of get after you. It's more just like, yeah, a little go with the flow. <laughs> you know, I get there and it's, just amazing food and baguettes and cheese and you can get a bottle of like a right bank Bordeaux or a burgundy wine in the stores for eight eight dollars or eight euros which is cheap when you're in the middle of the south pacific and it's just the most active and beautiful country where even the people like i've never seen such beautiful people from the ages of like 25 to 40 and just active everyone's either kite surfing or paddle boarding or hiking or skateboarding or doing all these various of activity. And since it's a French colony and French design, there's all these beautiful parks and everything around and wonderful promenades. And they really took into the architecture and like urban regional plan, urban planning of the, of the cities to have more of promenades and like coastal walkways. And it was just because it had so much money, it had all these aesthetics from old world and new world. And it was just an amazingly beautiful place. And we got to go down to the Ile de Pine, which is in the Southern, uh, uh, part of the island chain and it's just it's a very small island so it's all limestone rock and big pine tree forest to white sand beaches and even clearer water as soon as you get in there's there's dolphins and massive turtles swimming all over the bay and you can see lemon sharks and leopard sharks swimming around and you can tell if there's sharks and all these animals around coexisting like you're in a healthy environment you're in a healthy ecosystem And with the limestone and all the karst topography, there's all these caves and like underwater aquifers. So I rented a, I rented a bike one day and literally pedaled around the island and found all these caves. Like I'm a, I love, I love going into caves. It's one of my favorite landscapes. And some of these caves had such crystal clear water. You couldn't tell if you were stepping like onto a rock, if you're stepping through water onto a rock. So you get in and then these translucent caves and you can see a layer underneath the water that's a lot deeper but you can tell that it's a saltwater barrier so a lot of these caves are actually main inland like on the center part of the island but they have a saltwater uh access to the cave as well so you can dive down like through the brackish barrier and like look up and like see like the different layers like kind of settling in inside this cave in the middle of the south pacific so let alone i'm in my vision, living my best life. I'm finally fulfilled my dream. I'm an explorer. I'm out in the South Pacific hitchhiking on sailboats, seeing places I never knew existed, communicating with cultures and people I didn't know were still around. And all the while being very amazingly lucky about having found these places and experienced these things with these people. And and I'm almost there. Like I'm, I'm a thousand nautical miles from the East coast of Australia. So what happens? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. 
That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. In the process, um, this is now encroaching October, and I'm still getting that fire under me. Like I need to, I, I think I need to move. You know, I need to get mm-hmm. to Australia before November's kind of start of summer. December's peak summer. Like I really can't take any more time before I need to get to Australia to be able to find, first of all, a cheap house that's not with summer prices, as well as find a job before everything's kind of taken and people are set for the season. Yeah. So I started a conversation with my boat captain. I was like, listen, you know, it's like, I, I, when are you guys going? Like, well, we think we're going to be here and explore uh, some of the other areas of, you know, the coast and country for another month and a half. I was like, I know I promised I was going to come with you, but, um, and help you with your sail to Australia. But at this point I need, I can't, I need to concentrate on my existence and my life. And I need to continue this, this jaunt. They were not happy with me. Um, the, the wife, the wife gave me the biggest like mom guilt trip. You said you committed to a time with us in this. I know she was scared because unfortunately on the way from Vanuatu to New Caledonia, our autopilot system broke, which is essentially a self-steering system that you can kind of put it on a degree. It'll hold your tack. Uh, it's pretty much sailing for dummies. It's made easy. So since this broke, we spent three days at sea in a hectic like squall. So waves were pushing five, six meters crashing over the overboard and we had no automatic steering capability. So we were self-guiding throughout the night and day by a compass. So me and the boat captain switched two hours on, two hours off for 72 hours as we sailed to New Caledonia in this hectic storm. You know, it looked like something we had a clear weather window and all of a sudden this, it came out of nowhere. And, you know, thankfully our, we had reefed in our sheets at night. So like we didn't get really laid down. So reefing in the sheets is bringing in uh, the mainsail, to be able to accommodate so you're not trying to uh, accommodate and adapt too much when the wind's already on you you know you kind of have to prepare for the worst to expect the best in yeah, sailing yeah. you know everything's more of a guideline than a rule even when you're pointing to an island it's like i'd like to go there but in the end the ocean and the winds are going to take you really where you need to go you need to be flexible and that taught me a lot in with travels that you need with sailing like you just need to be able to go with the flow because you can have an idea but it's really up to mother nature and the ocean, whether that idea comes together. So I think it got that sort of situation and got, hadn't gotten in the back of her head and she was really uncomfortable. Her husband was a professional sailor. He'd sailed for years. He's like, yeah, Nick, I got this. Like, I understand, you know, he was a little more, um, okay with the idea, but still a little put off like fair, but it was just a time in my travel. I was like, listen, I just need to be 100% selfish right now and just think about me because this is my life and this is where it needs to go. So it was kind of the first time I took really control and said, hey, I know this is not the best situation. This is not what I would like to do, but this is what I'm doing. So I swam around to some other boats when we were in Ile de Pin uh, in the marina. And eventually I found a boat that was actually actively leaving. Um, he was this Italian guy on this really nice 42 foot catamaran. Um, but he was sailing into Newcastle to sell his boat. So I get in touch with him. He's like, listen, you know, my wife, would, I don't mind doing it alone. My wife would love for having you someone. So I'm sure this is gonna be a good situation. If you can find your way to Numia, um, you know, this is where I'm going to be. You know, this is the Marina. This is the dock. You can find me there. I'm leaving in two or three days. So if you can make it in that time, I'd love to give you a ride. So I've got, I've got a chance, but now this chance, I'm about 250 nautical miles south of the city I'm supposed to be in. So now I've got to find another boat going to Numia. 
So I'm, you know, continuing around on my little journey, knocking on halls, and like, hey, guys, uh, anybody going anywhere lately? Soon? <laughs> I'm kind of desperate. I'd really like to get to New Mia. I need to get a ride to Australia. I luckily, happen chance, end up with this um, Scottish couple. And the way I met them is they were walking down the beach in uh, after I was coming back from my bike ride with all the caves, and he was wearing a Florida State shirt. <laughs> that's and always, I was like, that's funny. This Scottish guy, I was like, whoa, no, where are you from? He's like, that's hilarious. He came with a Scottish brogue. He told me a little about it. He's like, oh, you know, I, I live in, I've been living on my boat for 15 years. We sailed, you know, from the great through the great lakes down the mississippi and kind of did the north american circuit and sailed around kind of the center and around north america and i got this in pensacola when we kind of stopped in so he's in ask, a, why the heck was he wearing a florida state shirt yeah so when he was in a thrift stop in like i think like alabama or southern like uh western Pensacola, western florida and pensacola like in the panhandle he picked up this shirt because he liked the color and I'm in the middle of the and South garnet Pacific. Garnet and gold, I, baby. Yeah, garnet and gold. So knocking on the hole, it's like, oh, it's you guys. Like, hi, um, are you guys leaving anytime? Like, actually, we're leaving tomorrow. It's you like, were the sign I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I knew I said hello to you guys for a reason. Like, thank you, Florida State. You know, Noel Nation. My wife's, my wife's FSU alum, too. So she gets it. She gets yeah, it. Yeah, she you does. Know? She does. Yeah, so, what, so, so then what? So yeah, so I, I end up with this Scottish couple and they were amazing. They'd sailed the world for 15 years on their self-built concrete boat. They've lived, they've circumnavigated the world three times. They've been all over the place. They were a singing duo. So at night we would sing these like beautiful Scottish folk songs. And they had all of these trinkets from all over the world in their boat. And they'd written their own songs and they're just an amazing energy and beautiful couple and just this old sea driven, you know, duo that had been doing this for years. And in 15 years, the only time the wife had gotten sick was on the crossing from Vanuatu to Numia. And that was the same time we got caught in that squall. So just to give you a little orientation on how scary and terrifying that crossing was that are just hectic it was just Jeez. big waves big big wind you know it's a new moon so you're losing sight of the horizon and whenever you can't see the horizon there's no light like you always have the bioluminescence kind of crashing over the deck but it's still it's disorienting and that's kind of when your body's like okay what's going on you get a little vertigo you get a little you know that so it's that's a little orientation on that part of the story so they they luck out and now my next challenge this marina is huge he gave me a general location of where to find him. And I'm like, okay, all right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of boats in here. If I'm not going to find him, someone's going. So I end up, you know, searching, going up and down, up and down. Thankfully I got lucky. He is the, the fourth, the fourth pier I was going down. He was walking back towards me. I was like, yes, thank the Lord. So get on the chat with him, get on the boat. Um, we're preparing for is about in preparation for a 10 to 12 day crossing from Numia to Newcastle. So this is the longest stretch. It's roughly about a thousand to 1200 nautical miles over deep blue water, um, the whole way. But the clincher is his 42 foot catamaran was over a million dollars. It was beautiful. I had my own double bed en suite cabin. Oh, like man. there was a, there was a drop down, uh, like townhouse style living room. It was a like massively wide front and catamarans are awesome. So there's monoholes and catamarans. Monoholes are true sailboats, you know, and they're going through your, when you're on 
tap and going, you're living life at a pretty much a 40 to 65 degree angle. Like your boat is keeled over and you're always moving. You're always going. So, you know, being the new guy on the boat, you're always on the tack side. So you're continuously falling out of your coffin shaped butt, uh, bed. If they hit a, if we hit a side wave or you're trying to like wedge yourself kind of into a specific area to be able to like handle the curve of the boat. But when you're in a catamaran, it's level, it's flat. The people, monoholes are for true sailors. People kind of scoff on catamarans. They call them noisy. Catamarans are luxury. They are lush. There's so many different variations of livable spaces on this boat. And a livable space on a sailboat is kind of defined by how many people can accommodate, two to three people can accommodate that space to be able to redesign that space. So on monoholes, there's very few. But when you talk about catamarans, like you have the deck, you have the netting, you have the back of the catamaran, you have both pontoons with your actual livable space, you have your your drop down um, kitchenette and like area underneath. But the waves are always crashing, kind of slapping the bottom of the boat. So some people really they can't get past that and they don't like it. I thought after my time on monoholes, I was on four boats before that. It was a wonderful way to end my my travels and continue on. <laughs> It was luxury. Um, so this captain was extremely interesting. He he didn't have a stomach. Okay. So he had a yeah he had a lot of gastrointestinal issues that required oh, him to actually re- remove his stomach. Oh, so like so, literally didn't have a stomach. I thought you literally that. didn't have a stomach. Like not what? not like he didn't have the stomach for sailing. Like literally he had his stomach removed, what? so he could only like chew small morsels of food, really chew them up, and then majority of your like breakdown of food happens in the slab of your mouth as well as your esophagus, and then in your small intestines. Like he couldn't really overload him, and then he was stricken with rheumatoid arthritis that had turned systemic, meaning that it was attacking different systems in his body. And this was about six years before I met him. He met, he got in touch with a vegan, a doctor that expressed a vegan diet that would cure him in California. And it worked. So he turned vegan six years ago. And after a year, the rheumatoid arthritis has reversed itself. He was literally becoming crippled. He's no longer crippled. And he sailed the world for five years, all by turning vegan and removing his stomach. Jeez. So it just shows you like the amazing power of your gut and what you put in your body truly does matter. Absolutely. So, you know, um, so that that was a wild story, but in the meantime, it required me to go vegan and, you know, he's like in the process, he's like, you know, you can buy some meat. Like, I don't care if there's other things on boat, but I was like, you know what? No, I'll, I'll fish and I'll give it a go. Like I've never, I don't really picture myself ever going vegan but I'll, I'll give it a try. Like, you know, this is my, this is my time. I'll take the opportunity. I'll learn something about myself and that sort of lifestyle as well. That entire trip didn't catch a single fish. <laughs> so, so you were vegan for the whole trip. <laughs> I was vegan. I was vegan. And you know, I was about three is about close to two and a half weeks. that I was vegan and I did. And the food was great. It was amazing. It is a bit more expensive, but it was delicious. I just, I found I couldn't get the energy, you know, at this point, you're you're on watch, you're on your feet, and even when you're standing, the boat's moving. Like your body's constantly adjusting, and you're really your metabolism's really cranking. It's a very healthy lifestyle. I love I love the the boat life. Um, so in that process, I kind of was like, yeah, you know, what, maybe it's just not for me. But I feel like if I'd given it another couple of weeks, you know, my body would have acclimated to it. And I could have found the energy that the fruit, foods would have given me. Um, See, so that was another insight in the life, and then I make make it to Australia. So um, I'm there, I've, I've made it, like it's the culmination of, of this journey, you know, and it's kind of where 
my story takes a turn from true exploring and traveling. Like after that, I was like, I want to just kind of, I still want to explore the country, but I showed up to Australia with $400. It's like, I need jobs. Mm. I need jobs. I need a van. I need to start exploring. So that's when kind of life settled in, in Australia really like kind of really happened. And how long were you there? Um, so for that, I was there for two and a half years. I was there one year on a working visa, and then I had a friend group, and I had a girlfriend, and so I had an international relationship. So I tried to make that work. You know, we uh, so first the love of my life, you know, at the moment, but it just turned out that we it's just the wrong time. You know, we wanted different things from life. I hadn't found, you know, I, I hadn't found Occupation Wild yet. I hadn't found kind of a job that was going to fulfill me. So I was still kind of floating around using this like hey i'll find the space i'll find the girl and i'll find the job and then changes like i'll find the girl I'll find the job i'll find the space and then it was like all oh, continuously trying to change to find my true uh like variation of life that i really wanted but i loved australia like australia is my favorite place it's a place i would love to live it's a place i'd love to lay my head to die like it is my culture it's an amazing country with amazing people, very active. It's like California in the 40s, it's the same size as the state of the U.S., but I think there's 27 million people now. Wow. You know, you can be on a beach. You can be on the, in the middle of the heart of Sydney and on a beach with nobody around you with perfect, perfect surf in an hour and a half's drive. Like, it was, it was Mecca, you know, and I found an amazing girl and lived an amazing life with awesome friends. And, you know, still some of my best friends to this day are in Australia. I actually have a friend, my friend James Mead, who owns the Mountain Garage in Sydney, which is a snowboard shop. He's coming to California uh, at the end of the month. We're going to do a big surf trip up and down the coast in my van. But, you know, that was a it just it turned into a different aspect of travel where, you know, kind of I was traveling and then I really has experienced so many different variations of culture, so many different places. But I kind of only tip, dip my toe in. Like I really didn't fully, you know, take the full plunge and really immerse myself. So when I got to Australia, I really enjoyed the culture. It was an English speaking community so I could, you know, make friends and communicate easily. So it's like I really dove in and kind of fully immersed myself into that culture. And I just I fell in love. You know, I love their outlooks and view on life and just just the way the country is set up and is moving forward. It's just really it's really refreshing. And it's a it's a beautiful place. And there's untapped exploration and wonders there as well but you know in this this whole journey you know it's kind of is transcribing that the whole time it was you never I never knew what was going to happen you know I never I never really knew what the next turn or next step or next you know mile of that journey was going to take and you know it took a while to kind of rewire my brain to find the joy and beauty in, in that in that outlook in life and to be able to truly kind of look back on my time with that and know that anything is possible. You can truly give anything a go if you really want to do it. If you if you want to do it, get out of your own way and just kind of go. Though the universe has a plan for you, someone has something in mind, you just have to get out of your own way for it to present yourself. You have to alleviate some of the barriers that you've put up for yourself for it to be able to really truly show vision into your into your existence and into your life and allow that to be able to come forward and you it could have shown itself to you but you could not have been ready because you hadn't let go of a certain thing or you hadn't been ready to see it or you'd been blind because you were too focused on forcing something else 
So that's something that in that in that travel and in that sailing and exploration and venture that really taught me and really rewired my brain into thinking that truly anything is possible. Yeah, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be there's going to be stressful times. There's going to be extremely scary times. There's going to be times where you're out of your element, but it's not necessarily a, a scary time. It's to me now it's more of an exciting time. It's a time of a challenge. It's a time of to really test yourself and see if this is going to work, is this where I really should be? Like, what's, what's the outcome to this? Like, what's the best outcome? What's the worst outcome? Like, I know this is going to be hard, but the juice, the juice is worth the squeeze. Like it's going to, it's going to come together and, and be positive and truly have faith in yourself that something right is going to come from it. That's awesome. And now you eventually kind of morphed into, I'd, I'd love to just mention, you know, for you to talk about how, how did you get involved with Occupation Wild and, and, and what is it? Yeah. So to bring that into play, actually, I got a job as director of client relations for Occupation Wild, which is an online job board for outdoor adventure and travel industry jobs by my story, by living my life through the South Pacific. So through uh, being on Courtney's podcast, um, and again, and you never know who you're talking to, but through two Patrick's and a podcast, I got the job with Occupation Wild. So I was working at a fine dining French two restaurant. Two Patrick's and a podcast. Two Patrick's and a podcast. <laughs> Sounds like a book. <laughs> yeah, right? So I was working at a fine dining French restaurant in Carlsbad. It's a new one called Jeune et Jolie. And I worked with this guy named Patrick's, handlebar mustache, awesome guy. You know, he used to live in Hawaii. And, you know, we got chatting and then it, he's his old roommate from Hawaii came into the restaurant and his name was ironically also Patrick. <laughs> so after work, we go out, we go to our local favorite dive bar called the Poor House on South Oceanside, listen to some music. And, you know, Patrick, uh, not the Patrick I work with, but Patrick Otterson, who um, starts, you know, asking me, he's like, you know, what's your story? And I start telling him a little bit about, you know, my travels and kind of, I just kind of gotten back from Australia in November of. Uh, 2018 so kind of fresh off the boat at this time was still kind of acclimating back into american culture in that sort of situation and he's like oh my gosh this is an amazing story like you have to meet my roommate and it turns out his roommate is courtney courtney condy who owns and operates occupation wild it's like she's starting this podcast like this is an amazing story like she'd love it and then little be known to me he it turns out he came back to her house that night and was came screaming into the kitchen and goes courtney I've met someone weirder and crazier than you. And he's like, you've got to meet him. <laughs> Through that, um, I end up doing a two-episode and three-hour podcast uh, with the Occupation Wild podcast, which you guys can catch up with on Apple um, Podcasts or Spotify, Very or you can cool. check it out on the, in the Nomad Quarter on OccupationWild.com. But that's how I kind of got in touch with Courtney. And then one day she came in one of the restaurants I was working in to kind of do some remote work was just kind of discussing, like she's having struggling with some sales sort of situations. So I was like, you know what? I've never done anything like that, but I'll give it a try. That sounds like kind of like something right up my alley. She's like, really? You'd be interested. And I was like, yeah, I'll start Monday. And she's like, oh, okay, great. So, there you go, man. You're ready. There to you go. go. You know, ready to go. And now I'm director of client relations and I would pretty much, I reach out to, any variation of adventure, outdoor, or travel companies to kind of offer them our platform to post their jobs on our site. So in, in full circle, I'm still leading my life by the passion of helping people understand that, you know, it's not that hard to kind of move outside and find your dreams and find your dream job and find true happiness in your existence. You don't have to work for the rest of your life to live a good retirement. Like You can live 
my dad's always told me I'm the only one that ever retired without truly having a job. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little resentment in his voice, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, he's jealous, but I got amazingly supportive family. Yeah. Same here. My dad's always jealous and he always throws his yeah. little comments saying like pretty much saying I wish I could do this too. I just didn't, uh-huh. you know? So it's it's a good pretty feeling. Much. Yeah, it's a great feeling. You know, in the end of college, it's like you got the piece of paper. If you can afford it, go out and do it. I'm not going to fight <laughs> you. I'm not going to tell you I can't because, Nick, I know you're going to do it anyway. So I got really lucky with that side of my family as well. And then I got amazingly lucky working with one of my best friends, Courtney. Like, she, we've grown super close. She's an amazing person. Like, I love working uh, really close with her. We're co-hosting the podcast together now called the Occupation Wild Podcast. I mentioned where you guys can find that, but it's just really showcasing people living outside the nine to five, just showcasing the average Joe that went out there, changed their life because they wanted to change it for a smile. They wanted to change it for something different or move forward in something bigger than themselves. And just it showcases just that anyone can do this. It just it's hard. It takes some work, but anyone is capable of literally anything. And You can go out and do it. You just have to get past yourself and give it a go. Man, what a story. That's awesome. And, you know, you're you're trading in one style of, of adventure for another, you know, helping other people yeah. do what you've done, essentially, and and build something with their passions. It's uh, It's got to be very rewarding. I've definitely, um, there comes a point with every adventure where they, you, you get to that point, you're like, all right, I actually need to work at some point. And if you can do something like this, man, that's just awesome. Great yeah, way to use yeah, all, yeah. all those times, those dealing with pygmies and going on little boats and yeah. just, you know, diving in random places. It's paying off, you know, literally. Yeah, it, it was. It turned out that living a life of marketability and following my passions and truly, if you're not learning, you're dead. You're always absorbing things that it, it got me to this point. I mean, two months before this, I was contemplating going back to nursing school and getting a captain's license and trying to start something there. But now, Courtney's giving me this opportunity to live a fully remote life. I can still continue to live my life and still still fuel my passion for helping people find that next step in their career or showcasing someone and talking to people that have done it and have made that step. And actually come January, we're taking, it's pretty exciting. We're taking the business over to Bali since we are a hundred percent remote. We've decided to just kind of pack up and, and move to a country that's a little bit cheaper, a little more startup friendly and tech savvy as well as, decent internet warm waters and good waves <laughs> yeah what more do you need you know yeah right exactly man well nick dude this is this has been great uh thanks for sharing your story uh i know people always love hearing when it's fresh you know what i mean when the adventure wasn't 20 years ago it was you know you just got back last year like not even a year ago and yeah now you're continuing uh, yeah. in a new way and you're about to do another one Move, moving the business to bali that's going to be yeah wild man well yeah, exactly man. that's so I can't, cool. occupation wild you know occupation wild there you go and you, you know yeah so <laughs> i'll put the van in storage and then i'll take off for indonesia and i got a little niece or nephew coming in march so I'll come back to the van and uh go uh continue to explore and you know see what happens next well man if if, if anyone out there is wanting to know what it's like to to pursue and do what you want to do, man. Follow Nick. I'm going to put all your social and everything in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, follow his story because he's proven time and again, you don't need to know. You don't need to know what's happening to, to live an amazing life. You just got to go and get and get out, get out of your own way, right? 
Exactly. Well, Mason, it was a pleasure, man. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, really cool talking with you. Yeah, and, uh, Thank you for allowing me to share my story. Yeah, man. Thank you, and I'll let you know when it comes out, all right? Yeah, perfect. All right, man. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, have a good all right. one. All right, bye. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.